Okay, so maybe we could start off talking about AI. Obviously, we started Site Advisor, which is awesome. And actually, by the way, deserves a return, in my humble opinion. Um, the Google results have become quite unusable. And then you ended up uh, starting Hunch, yep. which is obviously a master recommendation engine using machine learning and, and and many other things where I met you originally. Hunch offices, I remember that very vividly. And then and, and I got acquired by eBay, I think, in 2011. I'm kind of curious to get your take, I guess, on the, we could start with the AI kind of world more mm-hmm. broadly now. So like if we take a look at the past, maybe, I don't know, five, 10 years or so, and, you know, like a five-year-old asks me, you know, AI, I read all, my parents read these articles about AI. How is my life changing because of AI? I'm not really sure I could point to much. I can point to a lot of small incremental improvements, but I can't point to anything. Well, Siri and all the, I mean, those, those sorts of things are, I don't know if it's changed their lives, but certainly it's widespread and widely used, I guess. Right. So my question to you, to you would be, in the next five years, it's now 2025. Do you think my day-to-day life is like significantly different? And if so, how? Yeah, I think so. And I'd love your view on this. I think that we, with AI, so I don't do AI anymore professionally, but it's not because I'm not extremely bullish on it. In fact, I think blockchain slash crypto and AI are the, by far the two most important things going on right now. I just happen to think AI is, for a variety of reasons, probably a lot of the benefits are going to accrue to incumbents, not startups. Um, that, that's not to say there aren't tons of startup opportunities, but anyway, I, I can talk about that more later. But I think we are, you you tell me, but like the stuff I see like coming out of labs um, and things, it feels like there's a dam that's going to break, right? That, that, that we've only seen the beginning. And one, my understanding is the quality of the results. So like GPT-3 and this kind of thing, right? Like it's just like the size of the models and things. That's not slowing, that's growing very quickly and it's not slowing down. So like there's sort of a Moore's law type thing going on here, which is how big is your neural network? How, you know, how much data can you put in there? And that seems to be going up at a very rapid rate. And as far as I know, not, not slowing down at all, number one. Number two, so, so the core kind of quality of the AI is getting better, right? Number two, very importantly, it's being packaged in a way that's accessible to developers. So this is everything from cloud, you know, kind of compute training services to TensorFlow to all of these really nice software packages to basically every, you know, client-side computer now has specialized chips for running models and deployment. And so that's very important, right? Because what you need, you need it to get to the point where it's like AWS or something like this, or just like a database where, you know, every piece of software, including an you know accounting software, where they don't have a big team of machine learning people, is able to use the latest stuff, right? So you tell me, but I think that I think that it's just like a matter of getting this stuff out to market, a matter of the models getting increasingly getting better. I think another really interesting trend, right, is so much of the last decade was on images, AI, you know, ImageNet, identifying what's in an image. Second half of the decade, really cool stuff with uh, generative images, you know. Um, creating images. Now, a lot of the action is moving to text, which just, you know, unlocks a whole wide range of new applications. So I think, I, I think it's very likely that, I guess a couple things, like if you go back to the history of AI, it was, it was a sort of fits and spurts, right? There were all these kind of AI summers and winters. I think we're now in the, the real thing. Like it's, it, there's no more winters because of the things I was mentioning before in terms of the quality of the models and things like this, but also the economics behind it. Like there's now a business model for AI, right? Search and ads and all these, there's all these other reasons why all this money will keep, keep flowing in. Whereas in the past, they were dependent on government grants and kind of the whims of, of those various funding sources. So, you know, I think it's still early. Like, I mean, this all, like, so, so you, you mentioned, like, I, I got really intrigued by machine learning, I guess, back in 2007 or eight. We sold our company to eBay, a uh, machine learning company in 2011. I thought we were at the end. <laughs> it's, so, it's so ridiculous in retrospect. I was like, I thought we were late to the game and we better sell before the AI. I think, you know, of course, it really began in the, the modern era, I think in 2013, with the, uh, the Google Cat video kind of experiment that came out. Uh, I think was sort of considered the kind of watershed moment when at least the epiphany happened. People realized, I mean, I, you know, the underlying models and people have been working on that for obviously decades, but that was when people were like, oh, wow. And then if you look at the, if you look at like the ImageNet results and all the other kind of metrics, like it just got dramatically better. So we're, you know, that's the other thing. We're seven years into it. Like it takes a while to get these things built out, productized, deployed throughout the world. But I think it's going to happen. I think it's a major, major important area in the next couple of years. So five years from now, I'm, I'm walking around the earth. Do you have a sense for like what's 
what's going to be changed and different? Well, I think like like, like self-driving cars, like who how, we don't know exactly how far away they are, but they're, they're going to happen. I mean, it could be, it's one of these things that's so hard to predict. It could be, you know, Waymo's, my understanding is they're, you know, they're running in Phoenix and things, you know, with, with a safety driver and things. So still limitations and there's problems around like different lighting conditions and weather and it's not perfect yet, but you know, it's, it's just a matter of time. I mean, matter of time, three years to 10 years or something, probably it could be you know 10 years before they kind of get all the kinks out. Maybe even longer given that it requires cultural changes, right? It requires a mindset shift to be willing to go into a car that no one's in. It requires a new system for insurance and regulatory and a whole bunch of things. So maybe it takes longer, but that that's going to happen, right? It's going to be, you're going to have autonomous drones. You're going to have autonomous cars. You know, it's going to change transportation. It's probably going to change uh, manufacturing agriculture, like any place you use kind of vehicles and big, heavy moving machinery that may take longer. I don't know, but anything where there's sort of physical interaction with the world will probably be mediated through some form of AI over the next coming decades. Um, you know, information work, which is what most people, most of us do now, you sit in front of a computer and you do stuff, having a cyber sidekick there, you know, fixing your, you know, your spell check and your grammar. And the next thing is suggesting, you know, how to finish that essay. What's the best, you know, final paragraph for the blog post. I think maybe for a while it'll be kind of this quote centaur model, you know, which is the, the they call that centaurs when it was the chess players. I think for a while, there was a period in which the best chess player in the world was a human plus a computer. I think the computer alone now is best, but I think you'll probably have an intermediate period where these people are sort of assisted by AI in a, in a whole variety of tasks. And eventually probably the AI takes over more and more of that. So I think it's going to be, you know, but I, look, I don't think it's, it's like, I think one thing that's important is like the robots don't come looking like robots. Like it's not, you know, if, if anyone here, the, the people watching are probably too young, but there was an old TV show called the Jetsons. It was like a cartoon where, you know, it's like the future and, and, and what happened in the way that AI was delivered was there was literally like a butler who would go and like, you know, be a robot butler who embodied the AI and that was sort of, and they would go take the jobs. But in reality, that's not what happens. Like you don't, you don't literally take like the, the accountant and replace it with a robot accountant that looks like an Android. What you do is you just have really good software that is AI assisted that suddenly you're, instead of having 10 people in your accounting department, you only need two people, right? That's how it actually, that's how, that's how robots actually take over the world is like very subtly through kind of boring seeming enterprise software. Although I do think in the Japanese uh, version of the future, it is an animatronic robot. I just well, those Honda, those Honda animatronic, or what's that? Uh, Boston Robotics, those scary. Uh, <laughs> Very interesting that that thing was bought, uh, just bought by Hyundai again. It seems to be the um, yeah the tumbling pin of Silicon Valley from one company to the other. Um, okay, so that's kind of interesting. We're talking now a lot, I guess, about digital innovation. One interesting dichotomy I've been noticing is you kind of, of course, see the a lot of the American AI laboratories, you know, notably OpenAI and Google to some extent too, working on like the software stuff. And of course, the holy grail here that, you know, everyone's, you know, secretly excited about is code that can write code. A self-programming AI is kind of the mm -hmm. penultimate goal. But what's interesting is if you look at the UK labs, it's quite different. DeepMind in particular is going very much after the material science world. And I was kind of curious if you had any views on how like synthetic biology or how like the physical world might change as a result of AI as opposed to just the software world? Yeah, so I'm getting pretty far out of my area, but I will say, so I have a colleague, Vijay Pandey, who founded our bio fund. So we have a, a bio fund at Andrews and Horowitz. And the thesis behind our bio fund is, you know, why like our, our firm is very much oriented around software, right? And traditionally, there was sort of a separation between software venture, venture firms and bio investing, right? So they would do kind of molecule development and things like this, and we would do software. Our belief is that the two are kind of converging or intersecting much more, which is why we felt like we had the competency to create, to sort of go in, enter biology. And specifically what VJ would say is that because of software, machine learning, et cetera, we're now able to engineer biology instead of kind of going and doing, you know, trial and error and sort of a much more, think about how, for example, drugs are discovered, it was in the past a much more kind of physical trial and error process. And today you can actually go and using software, do much more kind of engineering uh, in a much more predictable way. So I think that's that again, this is, I'm getting, you know, way outside of my kind of, I'm not, a, I'm, I'm a only a hobbyist at best with respect to biology, but my understanding is that that's like a major area in material. You mentioned material sciences. That's another important area. Um, 
we have an interesting company that searches, uses artificial intelligence to search for mineral deposits, as an example. Like you're just going to see, I think, all sorts of interesting applications like that. I think the, probably the gating factor right now is just expertise. It's just you don't have that many people yet, you will soon, who, who are deep into this stuff and can go and, and work on all these different problems. That solves itself partly through the market, right? More, it's now the most popular class at Stanford undergrad is the machine learning class, and it solves itself partly through tools. That makes a lot of sense. You've obviously, like, I feel like you are consistently early to scenes that end up becoming big. Like, I think you were really the only fault one could take with Chris Dixon is that you're too early to things. I mean, you were dancing at the AI party when the club was empty and you left. <laughs> I definitely, that, that, that hits home. I definitely feel like. Uh, but um, but it's amazing. Yeah. You hold like you, you're always early and you were obviously early to crypto and, and more than made up for it, I imagine, with angel investing, too. I feel like you were early to a lot of trends. How does one become early to things? How, how, how should I yeah. be? Yeah, I mean, so there's no, I mean, so this, it's actually, I think, fairly straightforward. I wrote a blog post I called, I think it was what, what the smartest people do on the weekends, everyone else will be doing at work in 10 years or something like this. I got into machine learning. It wasn't like there weren't people into it. There were a lot of really smart people into it, but they were, it was kind of a cult. And I, I find that's a, that's a really common pattern. So what are the cults right yeah. now? Well, I think they're all over. By the way, they're not just in technology. So like, if you go back, my understanding is, you know, Chicago comedy in the 1970s was the genesis of like all modern kind of Saturday Night Live, whatever, a whole bunch of, you know, New York film scene in the, I think it was the 80s, maybe of like Scorsese and Bubba. Groups are much yeah, more- it's these small cultish groups. They're often, I think it happens in academia. I think, um, you know, I, I'm not an expert in this area. I mean, I know something about like maybe historical examples, but like today, I bet you there are all sorts of interesting kind of, maybe they're happening on the internet now. They used to happen physically, but they're kind of cultish groups. They tend to be people who are motivated because of the interestingness of the problems, not because they see any kind of payout or other kinds of things. Oh, by the way, one of my favorite examples in that is um, computer graphics in the University of Utah in the 70s. You go back, there was one, I forgot, there's one rich endowment trustee who gave his grant to do computer graphics. And it was the only place, one of the only universities in the country that took this seriously. And if you go back, it's Adobe, Pixar, like just Atari, Apple, like everybody was there. And it was like 15 people. And then like the entire modern industry was built by that, right? Machine learning, by the way, we could talk about that. These, you know, the fact that they're all Canadian, right? And they, they had these Canadian grants and like- Jeff Hinton is the patriarch, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Not one of the patriarchs. Yeah. I mean, you think about like, why were they working on, like just going back to, to neural nets, like why were they working on neural nets right. in the right. 90s and 2000s, right? I mean, it was pretty eccentric to do it then. And it was really, the, they had this view that, that that's how the brain works from what we know. You know, it has sort of a neural network structure and therefore this should eventually work. But that was very hard to get stay excited by that in those decades when the results just weren't good. Like when we did Hunch, like that was just, neural nets just didn't work. Turned out you just needed more GPU power and all those other things. They eventually worked. But but at the time, like the results just were very poor. Even at us for, for Q in 2013, and this is after the famous Hinton paper, which, you know, ultimately led to that cat situation with Google that you're talking about. It was still believed. I mean, we'd sold to Apple and we were like working on machine learning on Apple's budget. And it was still kind of believed that like, yeah, I mean, this stuff's super dumb. Maybe it can do cool toy examples, but it doesn't really work. But I love this idea of passion cults are the stories often of what creates future yeah. technology. Look, York. by the way, Homebrew Computer Club. Homebrew, exactly. Uh, Unix, open source software, like cults. all these things were weird cultish clubs. That, Every that you... person listening to this is only wondering, what are the cults right now? Yeah, I mean, so uh, maybe a pioneer. Pioneer maybe... crypto, great. We got that out <laughs> of the way. So what are the other cults? I mean, I, I have my theories. I mean, like, I, I'm going to be wrong about a lot of it. And, and I don't know, like, you have to be, part of you have to be deep into an area. Like, you have, like, I bet you there are some kind of interesting new databases out there that are, you know, I don't know what, they're streaming database, you know, or NoSQL. I don't know what, I, I don't, I'm not a database person anymore. I don't really hang out there, but I bet you, you can pretty much take any, any area where there's a bunch of smart people working and there's some probably like subset that's an interesting cultish group, right? I can speak a lot about the areas I, the cults I hang out in, which is, you know, crypto and, you know, what else? I think, um, you know, probably things, there's a lot of very interesting stuff happening around video games today as an example, but I think, I think you could imagine a lot of those things. I think the video game industry probably, even though it's $150 billion and, you know, people I think are starting to, to grok it, I think it's probably still being significantly underestimated in terms of how profound, I think it's the most, by far the most important medium, cultural medium, and still is sort of considered, I think is underestimated. Um, I think characteristic, I think, look, I don't know all the answers here, but I think the characteristics are a bunch of smart people motivated by 
interestingness as opposed to near-term profit, because usually these things are just too far off to see that, right? And it, and it tends, they tend to have this characteristic that the deeper you go into, I think crypto is very much like this, the deeper you go into it, the more interesting it gets. Yeah. There are fields where the deeper you go in, you're like, well, really, that's it? Like, <laughs> but, you know, the, the cult ones, no. It's like another key characteristic of the cults is that they, of the good ones, the ones that start off with toys and become a big deal, is the rate of improvement. Yes. Okay. So this is kind of Clay Christensen's core insight, I think, in Innovative Dilemma, is there sort of his core thing is this, two, is this chart where it's kind of, you know, human needs stays relatively flat. Like my need for, you know, how good of a payment processor do, do I want as a human or something like that demand stays relatively not constant, but it doesn't, it goes up at a certain rate. And then the technology goes up at a much faster rate. Right? Those are the disruptive technologies. And so it's this simple observation that these two lines that look far apart now and make people think it's a toy, those lines will get much closer. Now, the canonical example that, you know, is, is the telephone versus the uh, telegraph. So, that, you know, back in when Bell first came up with the telephone, Western Union, which was the incumbent, passed on, the, passed on buying the patents because they had a big telegraph business. And they talked to their kind of enterprise customers, you know, who were like railroads and other people. And they're like, look, this thing's great. And the telephone only goes a mile and it's a toy. And it's like, why would you want to hear the person's voice when I always want to send them like business info that I can do very efficiently through telegraph? And they under But of course, the phone, you know, once you invest in it, like you could go more than a mile, you could go much farther and you could do all sorts of the handsets got better. And just like all, all these things that the rate of improvement was so great. And so this yeah. people, people focus too much on this gap between what you want and what there is today when you should be looking at the gap plus the, the, the rate of change. The derivative. You mentioned earlier something very interesting, which is people that are very focused on it, you know, for the interestingness of it, for the purity. Often they don't really know why they're focused on it, but they are. How do you think about that with crypto? Because it does feel like with crypto, there's also a very big commercial thing going on because the innovation is money innovation. You know, does that distort? How do you see through all the fake scenes into the real ones? Yeah. Can I, can I just say one last point on the on the other? So I, I wrote this to this point. I wrote an essay a few years ago that was that ended up being published in The Atlantic, and it was about the history of computing and how it related to, to logic. And actually, that essay was meant to be on this top. I never actually, I, the title got changed and things, but originally it was going to be called, the idea was nothing interesting is a waste of time. That, that as long as you have a bunch of people that are really interested in something, it ends up having these inadvertent practical results. And to me, one of the most fascinating examples of that is formal logic. So logic, there was a great quote, I, I actually have it in the essay from a computer scientist that said, if you hired somebody in 1905 to survey the world and find the most useless, impractical subject on the planet, it would be it would be these 10 people who were, uh, you know, it was Alonzo Church, Bertrand Russell, uh, Kurt Gerdell, like, like these, these like 10 people who thought this was an interesting topic to do this formal logic stuff, which literally ended up being the entire kind of Alan Turing, the entire foundation of computers, of computer science and why after at World War II, that all kind of came together and you had this explosion and became clearly the most important invention of the century, right? And it came from literally like one of the, like any smart group of people would have said it's the dumbest, biggest, most abstract waste of time, right? And so I tried to kind of trace out the genealogy of those ideas in that essay. If people are interested, it's on my blog, cdixon.org. Um, I think you could actually go farther on this concept. And it's not just a technology concept. I think, I think if you go and you do the kind of genealogy of ideas throughout history, I'm not I can only know a few subject matters like logic and things like plots and things in philosophy and computer science and things. But I think in general, this is a pattern. I think it's a pattern throughout anything. Because I, I think of it this way, like it's, it's about time horizons, right? Most things in the world operate on a, like a two to three year time horizon. Like business operates on a short time horizon, right? Public companies op operate on quarters. If they have a really um, visionary CEO, they have to, they can operate on a three year cycle. Like there's very few institutions in the world that can operate on 10, 20 year cycles, right? And so, and one of those is, is sometimes a government research, things like universities. And another is hobbyists and hackers, right? The stuff they do on the weekend is because they don't have a time. They don't, they can actually do a 10 year time horizon, right? They're, they're playing with anyway. So that, that's my, I feel very strongly about that, that thesis. And it's frankly, the only kind of the big pattern to look, to look at the world through that lens, I guess. But uh, before we move on maybe to the crypto thing, yeah. um, actually on that point, one issue I think with people looking at things that have a very long time horizon is it's not really clear what metric they should be optimizing. You say, say, for example, I wanted to build space elevators, you know, which actually is yeah. a, it's very achievable to do. It does require, you know, 10 year decade level thinking. How does one even think about kind of raising capital for that and proving that they're making progress when at the end of the day, 
say if you're working on this, you're working on, I don't know, yeah. nanobots, again, very achievable. Feynman laid out a path 60 years ago. It's just not really clear, like yeah. three months in, if you moved at all, there's no revenue. So when you have something long-term, what are the short-term biomarkers for progress that you think of? It's a great question, you know, um, and, and, and look, by the way, it could be that, that in some of these things, just like the for-profit capital markets fail. Like they're just not, they don't work. And maybe, I mean, the counter example is stuff like SpaceX and Tesla, right? Like Elon Musk, right? Where, you know, he did manage to raise money for, and continues to frankly for years and decades and with these big ambitious ideas. I think, you know, and, and by the way, this, a lot of the stuff I was talking about before, like the crypto and software, like those things aren't that capital intensive. So you can have people just sort of do it on the weekend. So you could argue there's, there's sort of this other category, which right. is really long-term right. stuff yeah. that is capital intensive, like space elevators that's not properly funded today. And, and some people argue that the, you know, that's where government should come in or universities and others. And I am kind of sympathetic to that view that, look, I think generally people overstate the short-termism of venture capital, you know, like, oh, the, like it's actually a very patient asset class in my experience, you know. Totally. But here's the interesting yeah. thing about Airbnb. They, they can go and they can point to a bank account that's like growing. Yeah, yeah. And what I wonder is if I come to you and I say, that's hey, right. 16Z on nanobots, and here's my Google Doc. I've researched it 25 ways to Tuesday. It's yeah. enough, right. I think you have to do it more like project financing. So like the way that people build, you know, they they build oil wells. And so what they do is they have they have a very um, advanced and sophisticated kind of methodology for assessing the various sort of technical and operational milestones, right? And so like you know, and so sort of basically it's tranche. So you do some big. You know, I think I think big companies are pretty good at this, you know, with with like, you know, the PlayStation 5. I don't know how much that costs, but I'm sure it's billions. And I'm sure they had many, you know, sophisticated internal milestones as to how it's going and at what point they should change, you know, direction or, you know, they probably had multiple teams working on various things. I assume they do things in parallel. You, you know, maybe you saw this at Apple. I don't know, but like probably can't tell me if you did. <laughs> but, um, but uh, you know, like so I think big companies are very good at this sort of sophisticated project planning. I, I think it's an interesting question, like, should there be more venture firms that, that operate that way? Like, should there be other pools of capital that are willing to fund sort of 10 to 20 year projects that think about the world more in terms of technical and operational milestones, as opposed to kind of the way the venture world works today, which is all like recurring revenue and all these other kinds of metrics that really work well with software, but maybe not with space elevators. Yeah. I mean, I think the tricky thing is, at least from, I guess, what we've seen that I'd be curious to get your take on is, you know, person basically says, uh, maybe they managed to raise. Let's let's go with the nanobots. So they managed to raise twenty thousand dollars to yeah. like do some random to expect, and then they come back to you and they say, "Look, I blew it all. Here's some like nice renders of stuff." And you're like, "Well, I'm not a nanobot expert. I don't understand really." And then they say, "Well, I now need five million dollars to go to the next step." And I don't think there's a normal venture firm in Silicon Valley that would fund that right now. The counter argument, like Luminar, you know, uh, Luminar is a uh, LIDAR company, right? They just went public through a SPAC and they're, I think, have, you know, raised hundreds of millions of dollars. So yeah. I generally agree, though. I mean, like, or like Boom, uh, you know, uh, they're building supersonic jets, right? I mean, there are a bunch of these examples. I think, you know, the, the founders of those projects have to be kind of um, larger than life and, you know, like Elon Musk style to go and manage to kind of raise that much money. But it's like, it's a good question. Uh, um, you know, I, I do think there's an argument that I, I think it's a, I'm sympathetic to the argument that maybe like, you know, there's too much kind of short term investing and too much stuff on software. You know. One realization I had yesterday watching the giant explosion that was Starship, the most celebrated failure of all time is, you know, you kind of mentioned maybe two axes and maybe there's a third. So, you know, you mentioned whether there's like revenue in the short term, you mentioned whether it's capital intensive or not. But then there's a third one that I think is quite interesting, which is how visual the product development is. You look at what Elon's producing, it's visuals. None of us are, I mean, Starlink's not live globally. None of us are really benefiting from SpaceX. And yet people are extremely excited about it because it's visual. Boom, I think only works because it's visual. I actually think you would really struggle to make a nanobot company because it's not visual, yet a space elevator is. So in my opinion, like, that's the real loser, something that's capital intensive. And this is where I think like a lot of, you know, synthetic material biotech stuff really loses is it's capital intensive. There's nothing to look at, nothing to yeah. do, nothing to get excited about. And there's no short-term, you know, progress. This is, this is the, I mean, I think this is the, like, it's something like sometimes called the world's fair model, like this Tesla coils and, you know, right. space rockets and Martian colonies and like, and, and so people kind of, I think people, 
you know, if you, if you go back and read like the Founders Fund Manifesto, you know, we asked for flying cars and we got Twitter, like all the things they kind of talk about are these World's Fair things like Tony Stark, like, right, it's like rocket ships. And they don't talk about like nanobots and vaccines and I don't know, things that, like you said, it, it, there, there is a bias towards the sort of the, the spectacle, right? And so then the question is sort of the things that aren't, that don't create a spectacle that are capital intensive, how do you fund those? Yeah, I mean, or even things that create the spectacle. I've been pretty disappointed just in terms of man's ability to manipulate nature and just like command energy. I mean, we're not a Kardashev, I think, type one uh, civilization yet. And it seemed like what I really wonder is 50 years from now, 100 years from now, will we kind of look back on this era and be like, well, we were really good with atoms. We were doing nuclear, you know, reactors and space. And then we took a detour through all this like iPhone stuff. Imagine an alien civilization yeah. for a moment that is still using radio transistors, but can like fly, you know, yeah. wherever they want to WX or WS, you know, AD, and they just can command nature to do whatever they want. Every person yeah. has terawatts of energy available at their disposal. I, I wonder if they're living a better life. You Have know? you ever seen um, Back to the Future 2? So yeah. it's the one where he goes to the future. And I think what's striking about that movie now, it's, it takes place like 20, 2018 or something. So now uh, what's striking about it, it was made, I don't know what, 30 years ago or something. What's striking about it is they have flying cars. They have, you know, he's got a, a hover skateboard and they have no smartphones. Like yeah. they just completely missed. Right. And and by the way, I was at, I was at the dentist recently and I, and they had friends on the TV show, which I hadn't seen in, decades or whatever and it was striking it's i think it's from the 90s right it's striking is it looks exactly like today yeah. like the world has not changed right except for one giant thing which is smartphones and like all the plot devices revolve around like the two people not communicating in a way that would never happen today because they would just text each other but it's just striking how in 20 years to your point like all these predictions were you know the, the, this futuristic world blade runner Back to the Future 2, flying cars, yeah, and, yeah. and all this innovation along the physical axis, right? And we had none of it. None, nothing's changed. Like, literally, like, you, I, I think you could put a, with the exception of a few buildings or something, like, you could, you could, you know, We've it's, slowed it's down. In, the, the modern world is indistinguishable, right? I mean, Peter Thiel talks about this is not a, you know, yeah, this room is hasn't a common, but it is striking. It is striking. And, and just how good the phones are and the, and the software. Like, it's just, we've had an incredible run in that. Like, it's, it would be mind blowing to somebody in the 90s to say that we have this, you know, we have the supercomputer, internet can be the supercomputer, all of the world's knowledge. Mark Andreessen always likes to say, of course you're staring at your smartphone because like it's all, the, you have a, it's yeah. like a super communicator device with all the world's knowledge and all the human beings on the earth. Why, what, what else is possibly more interesting that's yeah. in your physical room than this phone? Kings and emperors would have murdered nations for oh, a yeah. like Yeah, so, I mean, it is, on the one hand, it is a miracle. And it's, and the fact that it's accessible to most people on earth, you can get an Android phone for $15 or whatever now. It is so. Let's not discount that the importance of software and smartphones. But you're right. Like, how do we how do we get that same kind of level of innovation everywhere else? Is a big it's a big question. And you know, there's different answers. There's the capital markets is one we're discussing here. There's regulatory questions. Like, there there's an argument that a lot of things have just been banned. You can't do a lot of things. You know, there's cultural questions. You know, it's just there's all this sort of pushback now and anytime there's new tech, although you could argue there always has been, but you know, you go on Netflix and there's all these shows about like how terrible tech is, you know, the newspaper's full of how terrible tech is and, you know, are we creating the right cultural situation, you know, kind of forces and, you know, the, I don't know, for people that, that they, they want to go, they, they grow up somewhere and they, you know, my goal in life is to go build space elevators, right? Like, are we, are we creating people like that? So on that front, I mean, it's a question I've pondered, I'm sure you've pondered for quite some time. Um, if at the end of the day, everything is upstream of culture, and it's really Netflix is driving the the software that is powering the humans, uh, should we all just quit and be directing movies? Well, that's like, I think it's another Peter Thiel argument, right? Which is there's no, I think it's his argument, there's no positive science fiction, like it's all dystopian. And I think you could argue maybe that's just because it's a better story. Like no one wants to watch a story of like everything. It all works out. <laughs> we can sit around, it's all great. But I think like, like like The Martian comes to mind as a movie where I think it was a very positive science movie and I think it was a good movie too. Um, so, you know, it is possible to have kind of pro-science. And it, it is a question. I mean, it's just, on the other hand, if you if you, fought, if you go read a lot of the history of, of uh, you know, the early airplanes, cars, there was a lot of resistance back then too. There's always been a lot of resistance to, to change. So maybe that's just part of the process. And I, it does seem like a fundamental human condition that it is easier to worry than it is to dream. 
I think it's just maybe metabolically cheaper. And so people are, it's easier to just, you know, pontificate about how Facebook is bad for you as opposed to think about how it's yeah. good. And it sounds, it always sounds smart to be kind of critical. It's easier and, to sound smart. That's right. That's very interesting. So to crypto for a minute. So I think like, as far as I can tell right now, the world bifurcates into three groups when it comes to crypto. It comes, there's the believers, the people who are truly entrenched, the zealots and the priests of crypto. The other extreme, many of these people are, are of course, the gateholders of capital of the world. There are the permanent non-believers. And then I think in the middle sits most of the plan, which is I don't really understand it. I read about it occasionally, and maybe I dabble in trading it, but I really, I don't know how to think about it. So I guess for that group, the, and I'm in that group, the question is, my question that I wonder a lot is like, if like, say a decade from now, we look back and there's like one Wikipedia article on the big moment where like crypto became part of everyday life, what do you think that Wikipedia article reads? Yeah. Well, okay. So look, can I get to that in a little bit of a roundabout way, which is I'm, I'll present my view of what, you know, blockchain slash crypto, we, we kind of call it both things. Crypto is, you know, what most people in the business call it. However, it has this sort of unfortunate ambiguity with cryptography. So what is a blockchain, right? So a blockchain, one way to look at a blockchain is a new type of computer. It's a computer. So something like Ethereum. So Ethereum is a computer in the in the strict sense of what a computer is. It has a way to store information and a way to, to operate, to sort of process that information, right? You can write code for the Ethereum computer. You can deploy it on the computer. That code can do things. It can store information. It can process information. And it can interact with other code out there in the same way you can on a mobile device or on a Macintosh or whatever. It's a computer. But you know, then you ask, well, why? You know, what's special about this computer, right? Well, what's special about a blockchain computer is... So with the typical computer, there's the hardware and the software and the person who controls the hardware, if I'm running code on Google's computer, Google ultimately controls the software. They can pull the plug, they can change the rules. If Google came, came up with a system like Bitcoin and said, I'm gonna have a Google coin and there's only gonna be 21 million Google coins, would you believe that to be the case? You, you would know that in the end, whoever controlled that computer could change those rules, right? right. And we've seen that through the history of you know, internet services, Facebook and Twitter and all sorts of things have changed the rules. Okay. What's different with the blockchain is is, yeah. so is they invert that power relationship. So the software is in charge. And so the way this is architected and because in case of Ethereum is you've got, you've got, you know, anyone can run a, a node of, on Ethereum, can be what's called a validator um, or miners in the case of Bitcoin. But those people are running code where, where there's a virtual computer on top and even if those people who are running the code decide to change the rules, they can't change the rules because of the way that the system is architected so that the, that the kind of the virtual computer that sits on top is resilient to any of the underlying hardware providers changing their incentives or becoming evil or et cetera, right? That, that was sort of the core insight with Bitcoin. So Bitcoin, you know, came out 11 years ago. It was a specific blockchain computer with a specific application, which is it's sort of digital gold. And I'm sure people here have, have heard about Bitcoin, I won't go on about it. But then what happened after that is, particularly in 2015 with Ethereum, is people generalize that idea. They said, okay, this is a, Bitcoin is a new type of computer that runs a specific application. What if we generalize that and abstract it to a, just a new type of computer? People can build new applications on top of it, right? So I very much view it. I, I say all this because I, I, I don't think this is normally how people think about this. I think it's important, which is to kind of locate blockchains in the history of computing. And so that, you know, the history of computing, every 10 to 15 years, you have a major new computing cycle. You had the mainframe computers uh, in the 60s and 70s. You had or 60s uh, PCs in the late 70s, early 80s, internet in the 90s, mobile phones last decade. Now you've got a whole series of interesting things happen. We talked earlier about machine learning, and I think blockchain computers are one of the profound things that are happening. And wh why they're profound is you can build, they have new properties that other computers don't have. And specifically, you can create internet services that can make strong commitments to their users or to the network, right? So they can make it, for example, one type of commitment they can make is a commitment around digital money. So like the commitment that Bitcoin makes is there'll only ever be 21 million Bitcoins. If you own a Bitcoin and you have the private key, it's your Bitcoin, no one can take it away. You can't double spend a Bitcoin. It makes a variety of commitments that in turn give that currency at least potential value, right? Ethereum is a much more general system where you can write arbitrary code that can make commitments, right? So I can make write code, I could write a social network, and that social network can make a commitment that if you're a developer and you build on top of it, that you that the rules will never change. You know, I could build a marketplace and say this will be the take rate. I will take two percent of all the fees, and that will never change throughout the history, right? You can one of the very interesting things happening right now in crypto is what are called DAOs, digital autonomous organizations, which is sort of a clumsy word for 
a new type of organization that exists only on a blockchain. So, for example, we're involved in a project called Uniswap, which is a, I won't go into all the details of what the, of what the product does, but I think one of the really interesting features of Uniswap is it's owned by the users. And in fact, they just, they recently, when they launched a token, they um, retroactively airdrop that token to all the users. So it would be sort of like if Airbnb back in 2015, after being out for a few years, took 15% of their, of their ownership and gave it to the to the Airbnb host, right? That just happened with you. This is this is a reality that's happening today. There's all these new digital services that are literally they're they're both controlled by and ultimately the the, the economic beneficiaries are the users. And they and they have that control and that those economics through holding these tokens, right? Which which control the system. They literally control the system. It's like Uniswap is literally this autonomous code. The people that originally created have no control over it at all, like it's it's a very new concept. The code just runs autonomously and it's controlled only by the token holders voting on, on changes to the system, right? So that's a new way to build an organization. And it's a, it's a way to build an organization that's global from day one, that's digital from day one, that's owned and operated by the users. I think it's a very profound kind of new way. Another very interesting feature of, of those organizations is they use the token, kind of the ownership of the system as a way to incentivize users. So this started by this other, crypto thing called Compound, which is a lending platform. That's another thing we're involved with investor in. Um, what it does is whenever you use, imagine a, fa a Facebook or an Uber, where every time you use it, you get tokens, which then in turn give you some ownership over that network, right? And so it's actually owned by the user. So I think 10 years from now, I think we're actually getting close to the, being able to build these. And I think 10 years from now, we'll have large networks built on the internet, including social networks, marketplaces, et cetera, that are truly owned and operated by their user base. Right. Our founding fathers of the United States of America very much didn't really agree with this approach just in terms of governance and very much were focused on finding a system where there were an appointed smaller group of people that yeah. were governing the nation as opposed to an actual complete virtual democracy. Do you think those people were wrong? <laughs> I don't want to get into politics. Um, and I don't know about our... No, but I, 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 I'm joking with the Fox News question, but you yeah. kind of get my point. Like, do you, would you actually want everything to be controlled? Well, by okay. I, look, I, I don't know if you need to, like, to, I think there's two questions. Like there's the question of like, do you need the people to vote on every single thing? Kind of like the way California does referendums versus representative democracy, right? Um, that's question one. The second question is like, let's just take core decisions. Like wh what should the rules be under which people are deplatformed? They're removed from a network, okay? Do you want that decided by an opaque product management group that you don't know who they are at one of these large companies, or should they be, whether directly or indirectly to your point, controlled by the user base? Like there's some process by which, you know, and by the way, this is this is not that new of an idea. This is how the web works and how email yeah. works, right? These are, there's no product organization in charge who can decide that, oh, this email, you can't send that email, right? This is how the whole first year of the web worked. And I would argue why we had so such a great period of innovation and entrepreneurship right. and everything else. And then we moved to this other model, which had other benefits, architectural benefits. I think because you could just do a lot of, you could just make, you know, applications that were more advanced because the web, the web one kind of thing petered out at some point. SMTP and DNS and HTTP could only go so far. I think RSS this is a whole long discussion we could have. Like RSS and specifically was kind of the open version of social that failed to get traction. And I think it's because it was... Um, Although now is having a total second coming with, with yeah, and it could be. And I think I think I think one of the things that's really missing though is is in, in, in the blockchains finally give it is state the ability to store things. Like you could never store, you never had a namespace with RSS. You know, you could use DNS, but it was clumsy. And one of the reasons people flocked to places like Twitter and Facebook is you go to Twitter and you can say I'm C Dixon and I'm going to follow these people, and you had a way to store that that information was stored in a database managed by Twitter. RSS could never kind of keep up with that. Blockchains allow you to have I think feature parity with proprietary networks, while also keeping the web one properties of being open. One curious thing, I, I, that's very interesting, by the way, one one interesting point I, I, yeah, I took from what you were saying is you could kind of construe actually that in the current paradigm, we do have a very distorted total democracy in the sense where the most vocal people and indeed the most vocal users win, even if they don't govern the platform, really all it takes is, you know, 20, 30 people who are super yeah. vocal and work at the New York Times to deplatform someone. Whereas in a world where people could silently vote, maybe anonymously if the network supported it, you would actually get a much more accurate representation. 
I think it'd be hard to design a worse system than we have today. When you consider how, <laughs> I mean, so like you could criticize the things I'm describing, but I think that they're at least they're, they're orders of magnitude better. I, look, th this is very important questions. Like the, the, the internet is, so I guess my proposition number one, I, I believe the internet's still very early in its development, right? Yeah. I think we're, you know, 10% of the way into the, into the mature, if not less, right? Number two, the killer app of the internet is creating networks on top of it, right? It's a network of networks, right? And those networks can be YouTube, it can be Twitter, it can be Facebook. I think the most, you know, some of the most important things built over the next 50 years will be new networks on the internet. And the question will be, how do we build those networks, right? This is why blockchains are so important. It's a new, very powerful art way to build networks such that you can, in a very granular way, allocate control and money. Prior to blockchains, you had, you had either the, the completely open thing like the web, which just ran out of steam, I think, or you have the corporate model. Or you have another kind of model, which is like the Wikipedia model, but it's they have to like beg for money every year and a bunch of other kinds of challenges, but it occasionally works. But like, this is a very powerful new way to architect networks where you can take these very, very important questions, I think, of like who gets deplatformed, you know, what information, what is what is misinformation, right? Shouldn't yes. there be some some open yes. process in the same way that we have an open process for other things in society that are important? Shouldn't that be something that's done openly? And by the way, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to take this on who should be platformed or not. And I, and I do think people should be deplatformed and I don't, you know, I mean, but they, but there should be a process and it should be an open process. Certainly better to have a, a clear one than an opaque one. Here's, so here's a question that like, I feel like people were really curious about and then it kind of dropped, but I, I really think we need to be endlessly curious about it. Do you think hundred years from now, 200 years from now, let's imagine, you know, various forms of cryptocurrency are in fact running our space elevators and, you know, our life on Mars. Are we ever going to find out who the author of Bitcoin was? Or do you think? <laughs> That's a touchy. I don't know. It's a good question. The, um, I, I, you know, I kind of, my bias is sort of, I'm glad that we don't know. I think it would sort of undermine the neutrality of, of the technology. The, the more informed guesses or, you know, people that, groups of people, some people that, that you know, were involved early on, I don't know. Uh, yeah, you're right. I think it's people have sort of stopped the parlor game of trying to figure it out. I mean, but it is incredible that, I mean, I don't think in the history of- well, by, I mean, by the way, it's, it's, it's not just, I mean, so Bitcoin is certainly the big one, but one of the really cool things happening right now is a lot of the most interesting projects in crypto are made by anonymous teams. And like, it's a very common thing. So like, if you went and polled people who are into this stuff right now, probably urine would be like the current kind of hot thing. And that's just, you know, I mean, some of them are known like on Twitter, but a bunch of them aren't. And- and, I mean, and, this is a person who finances uh, yeah. some of these things. Often what keeps founders going and what keeps founders in check is at the end of the day, they bind, whether they want to or not, they bind their ego with their company, their public, their name, the name of which they yeah. have only one, their identity of which they have only one. And that keeps them very motivated at times, you know, crushingly and cripplingly so, but it does keep people motivated. It also keeps folks accountable. Do you worry it at all that Either, you know, having a pseudonymous identity, which you can create and destruct at will, will either cause immoral behavior or cause kind of less motivated behavior? Um, yeah, that's, I think that's definitely a, a risk. I mean, one of the mitigating things in crypto, right, is everything is open source. Mm. Everything is run by communities. People get booted from the communities all the time. So the kind of the whole point of the architecture is there's no need to trust individuals because you can trust the code, right? Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons Bitcoin works, right? Is that we don't know, we don't, it doesn't matter if Satoshi, it doesn't matter if Satoshi is the NSA or evil, or it doesn't really matter because we know with all the codes open, we, you know, and a million, not a million, uh, hundreds of not thousands of people have read the code in detail and worked on it. And at this point, it's really not, it's sort of this evolutionary thing where now it's not even the same code anymore, right? It's been reworked and um, there's some, something on the order of, you know, hundreds of Bitcoin developers who are just constantly kind of reworking it. So. Yeah, it's, I mean, it spawned the whole genre of classical yeah. music, but it, it's still very weird to me that we don't know who Mozart is or Schubert or Take Your Pick. Yeah. Fascinatingly so. I don't know if you're the, uh, a registered advisor can talk about this, but a related question that I'm very curious about is what's your take on the, the most interesting plot line of 2020, um, which is not the elections, nor is it the pandemic. It's this, the aliens keep on hinting at us that they exist. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Well, and the and the military keeps coming out with these statements that seem like they they believe it exists too. I think or something, right? I mean, like. Well, I guess more more crisply, do you believe in aliens now? Well, it's aliens that have visited, or aliens in the Fermi paradox sense of it. I think the I think the it's Fermi, right? The that's his paradox, yeah. 
Yeah, I think, and that's in the sense of like, I think just statistically, they have to be probably out there. It always seems, you know, there's a, there's a, I think it was like, what is it? One of the, some cartoon somewhere, which was uh, UFO sightings. And then like everyone suddenly had a camera and then it just dropped dramatically. <laughs> so now that we all have video cameras around, like there is that question of like, everyone has a video camera now. Shouldn't this be like the golden age of alien sightings? <laughs> and so, I, you know, I don't know. I read all this stuff for fun, but I don't, I don't have really informed view on it, but. What do you think of the fact, though, that, you know, the United States military, this does seem to be a fact, is reporting that there is something that's been seen by multiple pilots who are obviously extremely trained yeah. at sighting objects that is moving at a pace that would indicate it's using a technology that is completely unknown both to this nation and every other nation, and they have no clue what it is and no explanation for it. Like, what is your best, it's not aliens rationale as to what's I think the, the argument I've heard is that it's, you know, effectively like an optical illusion. Like they they happen to catch something at a weird angle and, you know, I, look, I don't know. I, I think those, I've watched the YouTube videos of the- How fast? I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know. What do you think? What I find so funny is that the reason I'm struggling is because when I was growing up, believing in aliens, was basically being a crackpot. And so my mind is really struggling to adapt to that. And I'm wondering, you know, I kind of, I grew up Orthodox. So I always wonder this about religion. What level of miracle do I need to see before I'll believe? And it's, well, yeah. there is nothing there. Well, the other thing is that like, I think just the kind of the basic intellectual humility should be that we're probably wrong about, you know, half of the important things in the world. Like people historically have always been wrong about it, you know, you know, the germs were thought to be just absurd until whatever it was. It, yeah. I mean, you know, like, and like radio waves and, you know, and so like, I think just the default assumption has to be that like of the 20 things that we've, we say are ridiculous, probably, you know, some reasonable portion of them were wrong about, right. Whether it's, you know, ESP or aliens or, uh, you know, I don't know what, right. Uh, you know, new types of, you know, fusion energy, fusion, so, you know, whatever, scientific kind of inventions, you know, it was just, it was absolutely, if you go read like the books about the Wright brothers, it was just absolutely scientific consensus that flight would never happen. Like it's yep. just shocking to the degree that the, the level of conviction people had about that. Right. So and I think that just the default assumption is we're wrong about it. Just a whole bunch of stuff. I don't know which things we're wrong about, but I think we must be wrong about most of them. So I try to just sort of use that as my baseline. It would seem very unlikely that we're at this magical point in history the first time when they sort of had everything figured out. I think that's right. It's, it's funny to think of what the Wright brothers went through and Da Vinci effectively in terms of, you know, the flying machines that didn't work and then the real flying machine is very similar to what happened with deep learning, obviously in a much shorter time scale because everything's moving faster now. So that was 300 years. And with deep learning, it was about 40 or 60 years or so of Delta. Um, where you kind of get the first wave that gets proven wrong, gets written off, and then the second wave makes it happen. Um, it's very similar to your famous strong versus weak technology blog post. Okay, so we're slowly running. I mean, we're fairly quickly, of course, running low on time. Um, any good content uh, Chris Dixon has consumed lately? And this can be anything from a TikTok video to a YouTube video to a podcast to a book. Yeah, uh, I've read a lot of books this year. It's one of the silver linings in this whole bad, otherwise bad year. Um, I read a lot of science fiction. I read the, I finally, I didn't never, I should have read this before. I read the foundation series. I loved yeah, Asimov. I read a lot of, I'm lately I've been reading historical fiction. I'm reading. Uh, Ken Follett has a new one. Yeah, you, read? You, saw, you, spent my, you saw my Ken Follett. Yeah. Have you ever read uh, Alfred Bester? This is great. Uh, the star is oh, my destination. I should say um, that. Oh yeah. It's like, it's like um, kind of like Philip K. Dick style, like kind of half hallucination, half science fiction. Yeah. I feel like I just need to like read the science fiction canon. So I'm just trying to do that lately. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I, 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 so I guess I'll just tell you my framework, which is I, I kind of try to apply kind of the keto diet uh, mindset to uh, media consumption. So I, I find I can't, I believe you can't change your reaction to media, but you can change kind of the meta, what you do, how you spend your time. And the, my mental framework is books, uh, books are like, uh, you know, is a protein and Social media, I, I just got through talking about how, you know, everyone's so negative about technology and I'll just be negative now, but social media, like I love social media, et cetera, blah, 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 all the good things. But I do find that like too many hours a day is, is not good. So I think of that as sort of the sugar and I have all these sort of rules around it where I only uh, like can check Twitter from the desktop at various times of the day and you have to read books instead. I do think that just changes your, uh, um, oh, I don't read, I almost, I read almost no news. 
I, I deliberate. That's very deliberate. I have a, a, a rule about primary sources. I almost, I try to, I, I read news, but I, I don't like secondary sources. I like only primary sources. And I try to be really disciplined about that. So if somebody, if there's some news article about whatever, some thing, I try to go and find the data or read the original. You know, if it's about a study, I'll go read the PDF or whatever, right? Yeah, it's um, probably a right thing for the world to reward the original source with your eyeballs. I just find it's too like, it's just it's just a nutrition thing or something. I, I think it's a it's just a more nutritious way to go about it and you learn more and you develop Wait, a... So- We've gotten maybe the carbohydrate, we've gotten the protein. What's fat in this metaphor, which on the keto diet is your primary source of calories? Yeah, I don't, it's kind of breaks. It's just good and bad. I don't know. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, what is it? I don't know. Maybe, maybe books are fat. I, I, it's, a, it's a loose analogy. Yeah, so, I think want books as fat because fat actually satiates very slowly and books are kind of a slow thing. Uh, maybe protein would be maybe email, something productive. Uh, another thing I really like doing now is... Um, YouTube videos with academics and authors. Yes. And I find that's really nice because when they're interviewed, for example, like they're on a book book tour or something, or they're just being interviewed by somebody who's not an expert in the field, they're like, they're forced to get out of the jargon and speak. One is to sort of summarize things in a digestible way that, you know, people with busy schedules can like follow. But two, I think it sort of forces them to, uh, yeah, to not be kind of in the insider speak. And I, I guess I kind of believe like every field probably has a whole bunch of interesting things. And if I could just somehow get those out without having to read a whole bunch of technical papers and things. So anyway, so that, that like, I find just reading like, or someone has a new history book and you go watch the YouTube book tour interviews and it's just a great way to kind of go and discover new things to then go, you know, some of them you go read the book and some you don't, but like, that's been a useful hack, I'd say. Yeah, that's very interesting. It's like your best AGI summary you're going to get from the author themselves. Kind of, yeah. It's like the, I think so. It's the ultimate uh, GPT. What about you? What what else do you, anything you recommend I should read? Things you should read is interesting. I think you would enjoy, look, I mean, all the sci-fi, and I'm just going to presume you've read all the classics. In terms of, you know, one thing I started doing recently is, and this is, sorry for, not being that exciting, but it really works. I imagine you're a sucker for Sorkin material. I just started rewatching the, the West Wing. I know it's not that new, but yeah. it's worth rewatching every three or four years. It's extremely. Here's does the. It, does it? Does it? Does it date? It doesn't date. Sorkin dialogue does not date. Mm. It's so pleasurable to watch, and it's so clearly above its peak. Like it's a, it's miles above everything else, especially for for people that consume content at like yeah. two, three to five x. It's organically faster. Uh, anyway, I haven't seen that since back when it was on. I have to go check it out again. Definitely watch it. Yeah, I don't know. I find it incredible. Yeah, it's tough to find good sci-fi. Um, what else do I... I mean, I watch a lot of weird aviation stuff on, on YouTube. I'm not even a pilot. I just find it fascinating. So That's interesting, yeah. I'll send some to you. Just like F-16s going haywire and doing emergency landings. Nice, nice, nice. You've got to create a playlist there. Uh, I actually do have a playlist, a bit embarrassing in reality. But look, um, hey, this was awesome. There is one, actually, on the top of, of content, I've told you this in the past, There, in my opinion, you know, the world had Joe Rogan for a while. I do think it's gotten worse since he went over to Spotify. And a huge opening in the market. If you want to if you wanna be the next Joe Rogan. I told you my, my plan. I don't know if I'll ever be Joe Rogan, but I do. I did tell you my plan is someday I'd like to do more. Have, have a video YouTube show or something, probably more tech focused. You have one viewer here. Um, <laughs> All right. That's how you start off. You exactly. Get a small cult and then start with a cult. Exactly. It's limited to 10 people, like Gmail invite. Um, awesome. Good stuff. Thank you so much for the time. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. And uh, I, I you know, hope to see you and catch up more soon.